0: Amen. Thank you, Marilyn. I'll probably be drinking more water than usual, Um, going against uh, what they tell you to do before you preach. I just sang loud and hard, so I feel it in my 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 throat. uh, Vern Poitras, past professor of Westminster Theological Seminary had this to say about revelation chapter four when people are beset by temptation or persecution a revelation of God's character and glory is the best remedy when people are beset by temptation or persecution a revelation of God's character and glory is the best remedy. The Bible has this to say about every square inch of reality and existence. Every loss and pain, every victory and joy has this banner. Waving over it, that God is on the throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to give ourselves to your word, and we can only hope that your spirit would be here with us, working through the preaching, working through the listening that our hearts might hear, and that we would do more than hear with our ears, but that our hearts would be encouraged, enlightened, helped. Father, you know the ways, oh God, where we need to be convicted of sin. and You know the ways where we need to be encouraged in faithfulness. Would you help us know ourselves, know you, and know our world rightly, by your word, and help us to repent and walk accordingly. Thank you, God, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are back in the book of Revelation after taking some weeks off this summer. Marilyn said she was excited. I am terrified. We are coming into that section of Revelation where the weird things begin to happen. And uh, I am too excited about it and joy-filled, but it is a terrifying, uh, trepidation-filled journey that we are going to be on for the next few weeks. So put your seatbelts on, open your Bibles with me to Revelations chapter, Revelation. Someone, someone over here looked at me when I said Revelations. Revelation chapter 4, the revelation given to John. And we're reading, as Marilyn read for us, Uh, this section about God. Now, I just want to say a couple things really quickly uh, as we get into this section of Scripture and as we begin to look towards the seals and the bowls and the trumpets. Uh, This is going to be your experience going along the way. There may be times where you are frustrated that we're not going down enough into the details. There may be some other moments where you are wondering why in the world are we focusing so much on these details. Uh, You could do both levels and spend a long time studying the book of Revelation. Uh, I have just been overjoyed with the connections that our chapter has to the Old Testament. We're not even going to get into uh, the half of the connection through the whole Bible that the book of Revelation has for us, including uh, today's uh, chapter. So just be patient and know. We're trying to preach faithfully the Word. If your question doesn't get answered in a sermon in the weeks to come, come talk to me later. Uh, someone has probably answered that question uh, if I can't help in some way. But we're looking at this section today. We're coming on the tail of the letters to the seven churches. And we've seen this vision of a throne and one who sits on the throne. Now, we need to understand John is seeing this vision in order. So we're going to go back to chapter 1, look at a few things in chapters one, two, one and 2 that kind of summarize some things that happened there so we can begin to get an idea of why does chapter 4 matter? What does it mean to the listeners uh, back there? So go to Revelation chapter 1. This is John's introduction to the letter. John, uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. And just hear what John there says coming into the letter. He says, I, John, your brother, a partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, this just gives us some background who John is. He's a partner in the tribulation, a partner in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So everything in the letter is about this guy who is on an island for the faith, writing to the church, who are partners with him in the tribulation and the endurance of the faith. Beginning in chapters 2 and into 3, we see the seven letters to the seven churches from the Spirit, from Christ, about Some correction, some encouragement, that kind of priestly pruning, if you remember that language, kind of shaping the church's worship like a priest would tend to the worship in the temple. Look in chapter 2, verse 9, and just see a few things that are going to happen. We don't have time to recount all of the letters, but just look what's going on. Uh, The Spirit says to the church in chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty... The church is not just having peach ice cream under the shade experience. They're in tribulation. They're experiencing poverty in 2.10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Don't forget that. Put that feather in your cap. I know that you dwell where Satan's throne is. That is down on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who would not hold this teaching, who have not learned some of what, they call, uh, what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. It's a difficult, enduring call to the church to forsake sin, forsake the worship of other gods, follow faithfully in the worship of Jesus Christ and God. The visible church, some very faithfully and some struggling at best, are all in a world where being a Christian, that is to trust Jesus Christ as God's Son, crucified for our sin, risen again, to believe that, to follow that, and to live in that is costly and uncomfortable. Costly and uncomfortable. After the warnings and the encouragement from Jesus to the church, John is shown then next in chapter 4, this vision of the throne of God. Now fundamentally, principially, why is this here? Why, why is this chapter in the book of Revelation? It seems that the church is supposed to understand their existence and their experience in light of the heavenly, unseen reality. We are beginning to look back in behind the veil, as it were, veil, and we're going to see how does our reality, all the things that we are experiencing and will experience, how does that compare to, what does it mean based on the reality that we can't see, that heavenly one? In the real world where you live with trauma, with nations, on a real planet, in a real universe, there's also a very real, powerful, sovereign creator, God, who is on the throne over everything in earth and heaven. And the conclusion is not that they're just two entirely separate, distant, disconnected realities. It's kind of the... The, the, the domain down here on earth and there's kind of the domain up in heaven and you know the heavens they, they do the heaven stuff and in earth we do the earthly things and you know that realm is that realm and our realm is this realm but but that this is the way all of the things are. This is the, the vision into the throne room is the description of the unity of the sovereignty of God over every domain that exists. And this is not just another kind of progress report in the kind of history of redemption or in the history of God's wrath poured out or the end of the tribulation. This is describing in chapter 4 something that is It's not just something that happens. It's not just the next part of the story where God ascends up to his throne. This is, as it were, kind of describing, showing a picture of a static reality. It's always like this. Things exist like this. The whole world has this meaning. That's how this vision works. It's not about events in history, it's about the reality which links all events in history. And when John hears the voice, it says to him, come up here and I will show you what must soon take place. In verse 1 there, he seems to clearly be setting the scene for his events that are going to happen in chapter 5 and then especially in chapter 6, I think all the way through 21, The point being, I'm going to show you the things that must take place after this, but he is going to first show a vision of God on the throne by which everything in the world and history relates to those things. Christians first. What we're going to see in the throne, if you're a follower of Christ, is that there is an unmovable, central-to-everything throne Everything that has ever existed, everything, is subservient to this throne. And our God does not change. His plans don't change. His power doesn't change. This is the vision of God's throne and its relation to everything. There's a lot of comfort and encouragement in the immovability of God's throne. If you're here today and you don't believe in God, you're not following Christ, let me just ask you a question this morning as we begin to look at this throne. What is the reality behind the reality that you experience? Maybe you're actually even a Christian who just has some doubts about God. Is He really there? What's real? What's going on? Where did all this come from? There's a great little book that I would encourage you uh, to consider, uh, produced by the Gospel Coalition this year called Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church. A guy named Trevin Wax wrote the first chapter called Doubt Your Way Back to the Truth. When I first read that, I thought, I'm probably going to get like a paragraph in and, just not, and be done with this book. But it's actually very helpful. Here's how Trevin Wax talks. You might expect me to tell you, speaking to those who are doubting or uh, the, the word today deconstructing, you might expect me to tell you simply to have faith, to set aside your doubts and take a leap. Leave something to be true before you are convinced of its truthfulness. But this response makes the Christian faith seem disconnected from tough questions. But this uh, no, the last thing I want you to do is suppress your questions and squelch your doubts. Instead, I hope you'll discover even more questions and entertain even more doubts in the sense that you ask more questions. You heard me right. You, you need to doubt more. You need to question more. So this is so helpful. He's basically saying to us who are doubting God not to be lazy doubters. Actually keep asking questions about our questions the motives behind our questions, the source of the answers for our questions. Keep looking, keep asking questions. And my, my point is this. I, I think that you will find there has to be some center of reality. There's always another question about why and how we are here what is there who is there what do they want from us what's the plan what's the goal and today probably the most important question the epistemological question that we should be asking today is how can we know anything how can we even know that's not far from the central purpose to the book of revelation which is to reveal it's to reveals to show Remember how John starts the beginning of the book, Revelation chapter 1. You can look there, chapter 1. He begins by saying this is the revelation. That word revelation is the word apocalypse. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known By sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John fits in this way. Revelation chapter 4 is this revealing, this seeing behind the veil of created things into God's throne. At best, just the most fundamental nature. God is a revealing God, by His word to His by His word to John. God is revealing, and what we find to summarize in Revelation four is we are revealed. We get to peer into kind of the um, operations room, the control room behind everything that exists I remember a few years ago uh, just before we had children my wife and I were uh, serving in Hong Kong and uh, the US Navy uh, had parked several of their ships uh, in the harbor uh, to come get rid of their trash they had a contract with China to get rid of uh, trash and waste and of course the sailors would come in and Uh, eat and have a good time for a few days. We were going up to a tourist spot and uh, got into a little cabin with another couple, and we were trying to take selfies, and they were trying to take selfies, so we decided, hey, let's take each other's picture. We got to know each other. And turns out this guy was a mechanic. He was an engineer who worked on this particular fleet. When they got back to San Diego, he was there making sure he knew what repairs they were going to need. And as we were talking, as my dad, my grandfather was in the Navy and we were talking about things and he said, would you like to come take a tour of one of the destroyers in the fleet? He said, I can't get you on an aircraft carrier, but if you'll come, I can get you onto a destroyer. I was like, all my plans are canceled. Just tell me when I can go get on the U.S. naval destroyer. So we get up. There's a nuclear sub parked next to it. We walk around into the mess hall. We, we walk around down into the engine room. We walk up onto the deck. We walk in the captain's quarters and see his war history books and uh, his cap and all these different things. But then we go into a, another room. We go into the room, I don't even remember what's called, control room operations, I' have no idea. We went in, and when we went in, I immediately saw a big picture, one big huge screen of the world, with lines drawn all over the world in the oceans, other screens, people at computer screens all over the place, and as soon as we walked in, someone yelled, civilians on deck, and immediately, <laughs> like just everything went black. And I thought this, I thought Jason Bourne was going to like run in any minute that something serious was going to happen because I thought we're, we're somewhere where the stuff happens. There's something they don't want us to know. And uh, I, I, I thought that was awesome enough and I didn't even get to see anything. I just saw the place where the, the things are seen and decisions are made and wars are fought. But on a principal level, God is inviting in the followers of Jesus Christ into the control room, if you will, but in order to reveal. When, when we come in, instead of saying, hey, earthlings on deck, let's make sure they don't see anything, right? Instead, the course of action is bring John up here so that we can show him what will soon take place. That's the kind of access that John is giving us, that this revelation is giving us, getting to see into the throne room of God so that we can know what it is like, so that we can be encouraged that we're, what, what's happening in the, the secret kind of rooms about the plans of the earth, they're not secrets, actually. We're, we're actually being helped to know, right? Right? You know, I, I don't think of myself as a conspiracy theorist, but when there's something in the news that comes out of the mouth of our president or the government, I'm just all, I just read enough history to think, well, that's probably only like a third of what's actually going on, right? I've seen enough spy movies, read enough history, where I just know it's never all the story. But God's actually inviting those who would read his word, those who are followers of Christ into with John kind of seeing the throne room of God so that we can know who he is, what his throne and what his reign are like. When you get into this control room, when John comes and he looks in, there's really only two things that he sees. I know there's all kinds of descriptions in there. There's all kinds of things we're gonna give attention to, but there's two things that he sees. One is the throne, and the other is him who sits on the throne. The throne itself, which I think is something 12 or 14 times in this chapter referred to, giving it prominence. And the one who sits on the throne worships twice in two choruses at the end of the chapter giving him prominence. Let's look at the throne. When you go in, when John goes in and he sees the throne, what does he see? What makes a throne a throne? Now, you, you might have seen movies where, uh, or, or shows where thrones are made out of swords or made out of gold or made out of felt, or maybe you've seen the, the throne of the Queen of England. I've, I don't know what that looks like. You know, in, in America, we don't have thrones. We have a desk, right? We have an oval office with a desk, right, because that, that represents what we think about how kingship works and how authority works. But what we're going to see in this throne is that it's not so much defined by what it's made out of. That doesn't seem to be the most prominent, interesting aspect for John. That's not what he recalls. Rather, what makes the throne and what makes the authority is the things that are around the throne, the things that surround the throne. And, and you can get this idea because you've seen movies, whether it's Emperor's New Groove or, or you know some other movie where you go into a throne room and you know if the, if the king has cheetahs, and lions lying around as pets in the throne room. That says a lot about this king. If he's got a whole buffet and a feast of food over here, and there's servants and and guards surrounding his throne, that says a lot about his his power and and who he is. What John is going to describe for us is what's around the throne, what's before the throne, and that's going to show us how powerful this throne is. Look in chapter 4, verse 3b. I know we're jumping in the middle of a verse. We're going to come back to 3a. We're going to look at the throne first. First, we see there are two things encircling the throne. Two things encircling the throne. Chapter 4, verse 3, halfway through, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, A a rich, deep green. Now, rainbow in this passage doesn't just necessarily mean the meteorological phenomenon that you know that has the seven colors and Skittles at the end. John said the whole thing was emerald. The whole thing is green. The word in ancient Greek referred to the halo around the moon sometimes. Or that word for rainbow could even refer to the ring around the, the iris in your eye. And it doesn't seem to be a rainbow that kind of arches over the throne, like a half arch or even just a U-shaped arch. The, the word around here actually means encircled. There, there are very different words in this passage which are translated to around or before in this passage. So what does it mean though? What's the, what's the emerald rainbow mean? It, it seems to mean beauty and glory and and majesty and an unimaginable worth in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28 Ezekiel had a vision which is comparable to John's vision and he says like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain so is the appearance on the brightness of the brightness all around. Now, Ezekiel didn't mention the color there. He mentioned the brightness, and he mentioned the fact that it's some kind of translucent rainbow kind of appearance. I don't know how else to describe that translucent, rainbow, glowing brightness, but this seems to be representing the aura of God, the, the glory, the aura of God's glory around him. Right? You can put whatever you want in your throne, some flowers or some plastic plants. God has an aura of a rainbow shining all around him, all around his throne. Next thing he says in chapter 4, verse 4 around the throne were 24 elders, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Who are these beings? Are they people? Elders? Are they angel elders? Are they kings? Why are there 24 of them? Smart, well intended commentaries disagree about this. I, I'm kind of four days a week, I think they're angels. Three days a week, I think they're men. Like I go back and forth, I read this commentary, go, that's helpful. I read this, All right, that's helpful. And I kind of kind of put it together, make up my own mind, and I'm going, well, I've got two charts here. I don't, I don't really know. And John doesn't tend to, seem to give us too many more details. You know, why is it 24? You, you might just think like on, on your own, it's like, well, there's 12 tribes of Israel, there's 12 apostles. So if you've got 12 and 12 plus 24 equals the Old and New Testament, equals all, all the people of God represented on thrones before the throne of God. I think that makes sense. That, that makes, that's logical, that's good. You, you might go back to First Chronicles and see that in, in David's temple and around David's rule, there were 24 priests, 24 orders of priesthood, that is, 24 worship leaders, 24 gatekeepers in the temple. I don't think that's insignificant. My my guess is that it probably has something to do with both of those put together, kind of the the, the tribes and the apostles, the 24 priests around the temple that David uh, had employed. They wear robes of white, signifying their righteousness. They have golden crowns, signifying a glorious rule And they each sat on a throne, which means they have authority. They have some rule. They have some service to the throne that they encircle. The main thing is that there's 24 thrones around it. There are these elders who have rule, and they all have golden crowns. And what's going to be even more important is what they do with those crowns in a few moments, in a few passages. But look next in chapter 4, verse 5. This comes from the throne Lightning and thunder come from the throne. Chapter 4, verse 5, From the throne come flashes of lightning and grumbles and peals of thunder. From means that the lightning and the thunder come out of the throne. The the phrase insinuates that they belong to the throne, as it were. What what does the lightning and the thunder mean? It means power. It, It also can insinuate judgment, you can look back through the Old Testament, going back to Moses on the uh, Mount Sinai, for example, and just see: you don't want to come up here; you're going to die. Right? And what was the cloud filled with? Lightning, thunder, fire. The coming uh, that is coming from the throne. It's important because thunder and lightning show. So, open the rest of the book. Go with me uh, a few chapters later. I think this is in verse eight or ten. You could correct me. I didn't write the chapter, so that's, that's helpful. In chapter 8, verse 17, or chapter 10, verse 17. You can, you can yell it out or maybe just keep it to yourself so you don't interrupt. But a uh, verse 17 in Revelation, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. This is the seventh bowl of judgment. And a loud voice came out from the temple and from the throne saying, It is done And when this happened, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and great earthquakes such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. We see this, I think, four or five times through the book of Revelation when God's judgment is being poured out in the subsequent chapters that the seventh or one of the critical judgments is accompanied by thunder and lightning. And that points back to this moment where we say, well, where does that come from? It, it's not just like, oh, you know, just happened to be a meteorological phenomenon in heaven that day, just happened to be thundering and lightning today, I mean, it just, just happened to be a storm coming up. No, it, it emanates from the throne. It's accompanying the judgments to show that what is coming is coming from the throne of God, His authority, His permission, His command. That's what it means to come from the throne, this thunder and lightning. Church, when you see the wrath on the earth that comes in the seals that are being described, the trumpets and the bowls, know that they come on the command and the authority and the plan of God from his throne itself. But look before the throne. There are two things mentioned as being before the throne next. Kind of in front of the throne. That word before doesn't mean just kind of in the presence of. It means in eyesight or in the face of. So these things don't seem to be in a circle. They seem to be in front of God. All of them visible from his face, as it were, from the face of the throne. Look there, continuing the next verse. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We're going to say more about the spirits, the seven spirits next week. We've talked about seven and the spirits, the angels, and chapters uh, past, so you can go back and look there. But here this morning, the, we'll just say, in, in short, the whole, the perfect, multifaceted spirit of God is there before him. His throne thus resembles and portrays his holiness, his uniqueness, his spirit, like on the day of Pentecost, is better understood by being portrayed as having properties of fire, glowing, refining, lighting, heat. And that is how God's spirit is represented before him. Look at the crystal sea in chapter four, verse six. And before the throne, there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Ezekiel seems to focus, when he sees this, he seems to focus on the distance of this sea referring to it as an expanse the point was that it separated the throne from any who might approach just like one does simply not walk into mordor one does not simply trod into the presence of god there's a vast expanse that suggests a slow careful if possible approach to god and then encircling again next are four living creatures. These four living creatures in chapter four, partway through verse six. And around, again, that word around doesn't mean just kind of hanging out around God, but encircled around God, around the throne, one on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight and the four the and the four living creatures each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within now what do we do to make sense of these creatures we need to be imaginative in a sense. Jonathan Edwards talks about this, that revelation is given to us that we might imagine things. These are word pictures created to get us thinking what in the world could this be like. But G.K. Chesterton humorously quipped regarding revelation, specifically this chapter, he said, "...though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators." We have to give some understanding to this. What does this mean? What is it saying? Ezekiel actually describes their wings as two covering their bodies, two stretched out, touching one another's wings in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 11. So we have this picture looking at Ezekiel and Revelation, these creatures on all four sides, seemingly outward facing, their wings stretched out, And as their wings stretch out, their wings touch each other, making a perfect circle around the throne on all four sides. A display of ready service, it seems. A display of guardianship and vision given the eyes. Some might say this represents God's omniscience, but God does not have omniscience through his creatures or through some cherubim or anything like that. He's omniscient in that he just... Knows all things. He doesn't need a drone, a cherubim drone to fly over the earth and check things out for him. He just knows. So it's something about them representing all of creation. I think that Thomas Schreiner was helpful by just suggesting that they are designed to be representative of the whole created order of animate life. I think that's the most helpful summary that I've seen and is what I would see there as well. Their, their bodies, the way they're made, the way they work, what they're doing, where they are, their eyes and their wings, they're designed to be representative of the whole created order of animate life. In fact, they're referred pretty dumbly, if you will, as living creatures. I mean, they're just general living creatures. You, you think they might have a better name given the wings and the eyes and their faces, but they're just referred to as living creatures. Representing all the created life is subservient to God. Is it alive? It serves God. Animal, it serves God. Man, it's to serve God. They represent the cunningness and the prowess of a lion, the power of the ox, the majesty of the soaring eagle and uh, ideas about them, uh, attributes about them that we might not even be able to perceive but that this is the attributes of God's created order. This is the attribute of the living animal human kingdom that we live in. This is the Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light. And then he created life. And Ezekiel actually defines them by the term cherubim when he sees them. Those who are holding up the throne of God. Those who go with and carry the presence of God away from the temple in Jerusalem when it's destroyed in 586 B.C. And listen, I don't don't think we have time, I don't think we really need to, for the sake of preaching at least, spend time exploring it all of what these cherubim mean and what they are, but just consider that it was cherubim, not very different, and same word as Ezekiel, that guarded the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden, it was cherubim who stood there with swords banishing mankind from God's presence. Cherubim were made of gold over the mercy seat where God dwelled in the temple, symbolizing the authority, the guardianship, the carefulness that ought to be considered with God's presence. Cherubim were woven into the curtain of the temple before the Holy of Holies so that when the curtain tore from top to bottom on the day that Jesus was crucified and the sky thundered and the ground shook, that curtain tearing in two tore right between two cherubim that seemed to have been designed to represent that garden barrier. And that when Christ died on the cross, he actually made a way, a living way, his own resurrection body as the new curtain, the, the new way that we come into the presence of God. Right? We will never be able to get past cherubim, never be able to get back into the presence of God because of our sin on our own. If we trust and believe in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross was a forgiveness for us that we might go past into the presence of God and be with him. These cherubim, them, seem to be guardians, servants of the ministry of the purposes and the presence of God. The point here is that the throne is guarded, surrounded, served, and worshipped by all creation. The rainbow of translucent, bright, emerald glory. The elders and the authority and their crowns. The expanse of the crystal sea. The lightning, the thunder emanating from the throne. The cherubim, living creatures. It's all saying there's no higher throne in all the universe. There is no higher court. There's no one else to appeal to. There's no other sovereignty like this sovereignty. Whatever is has this throne as its higher throne. Whatever happens has this throne overseeing the happenings. It is and it happens under the order and the power of this throne. But that's just the throne. John sees. And here's about the one who sits on the throne. Go to Revelation chapter two, or uh, chapter three. Nope, chapter four, verse two. Y'all gonna make fun of me, man. I gotta I got, I got work on my notes, I guess. Chapter four, verse two through three. the verse that we didn't complete earlier. He says, I, at once I was in the spirit. This is a spiritual experience for John. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnalian. Now, is God a rock? Like, is he a rock? No, I don't think that's the point of this at all. You don't have to have like a degree in geology to try to figure out what's going on here. He has the appearance, it says, of Jasper, which is a rock and sometimes translucent like quartz. So it has a character of the way that it shines light. Cardinalian is the same way. It's an orange-amber-colored stone, not not far from the color of a good campfire, you might imagine. And these are the stones that when you go into the, the jeweler's store the, or the jewelry store, the rock shop, they'll have them under a bright light. Why? Because they they do something with the light. Light shines through them and makes them even seem like they're glowing. So that seems to be why John would look at this figure on the throne in heaven and say they look like rocks. Not because they look like rocks, because I don't know how else to describe the glowing effect that is coming off of the throne. It's like Jasper and Cornelian in that way. When Ezekiel saw this throne, this is how he described it. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 27, he says, And upward from what? "...had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, metal on fire, molten metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around it. And downward from what appeared to be his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him." So if you take Ezekiel's vision that looks like fire and you know hot metal and and you take John going looks like Jasper and Carnelian, you figure out these guys are trying to figure I don't know how to describe this. It's the appearance of it's like this. I don't I don't know when I saw it, the first thing came to my mind was Jasper and Carnelian, right? Like that's how it kind of glows and that's how the light moved. It looked like fire, it looked like molten, gleaming metal to me. Like it didn't make sense to me. That's the best description that I have. But he's not just an unnamed, impersonal force. Go down to Revelation chapter 4, verse 8 through 11. The living creatures and the elders help reveal by their worship exactly who it is that sits on the throne. The four living creatures, chapter four, verse eight, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. worthy are you our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created who sits on the throne above everything that exists, God Almighty." These four living creatures, these unique to all existence creatures, but yet looking like existing creatures, they sing holy, holy, holy. They sing about His uniqueness, His purity, His righteousness, that's His holiness. His ability, they sing about His eternality. And then after their singing, when when they sing, the elders fall down on their faces like Ezekiel did, and they sing and they worship. Worthy are you for all power, honor, and glory. Verse 11, they refer to him, worthy are you, our Lord and God. It's literally our God and the God. They're careful to identify God in their worship of him as the creator they're taking painstaking if there's careful words here and what they're singing and saying it's short and simple everything that came into existence came into existence because you wanted it to it was your will that it came into existence why is everything the way it is? Why does the earth exist? Why does the universe exist? Why do these creatures exist? Why do these 24 elders exist? Why does heaven and earth exist? you It was your will that they existed and were created, all things. I mean, when you hear this, I don't know about you, but we ought to, and it has been my difficulty all week to just be like, how, what do I say about this? Like, What do you add to this? Like, how do you preach this? Like, maybe I should just get up and read this and let's all go home. Because I, how, how can you comprehend the magnitude of the scene and the person and the throne that's being described here? It actually comes down to being very simple. The, the point of the, uh, of the rainbow, the point of the uh, creatures, the, the point of the crystal sea, it's all that God is holy and that He's the one who was and is to come. It's all that He is worthy of glory, honor, and power. The whole point of the whole scene and their worship and everything is that you are, You created all things. Really quickly, three things this ought to lead us to. Three things this can help us and lead us to. Go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. As we look back at the seven churches, the passages just before Revelation 4... It's really two things that are preached to the church, that are delivered by the Spirit to Christ's church. One one lane to the churches is you need to repent. The other lane is you're being faithful, endure. And this vision of God empowers, amplifies both of those to the church. He calls the church to repent in chapter 2, verse 5, which is written to the church in Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from whom you have fallen. This is the first church mentioned. From where you have fallen, here's the instruction to the church in Ephesus and other churches. Repent and do the works that you did at the beginning. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Friends, this comes from that throne and him who sits on the throne. It comes under his authority, comes under his son, comes by his spirit. There's no higher authority, there's no higher throne than God's creation throne. Consider how you might need to repent today knowing that God is, the Creator of all things calls us to repent, which means turn from our sin. Maybe confess our disbelief to God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe just confess that we've been living in sin as if the God in heaven isn't there and isn't watching. And we would read this and realize there's a very real powerful thunder lightning from His throne, God in heaven. And this would help us to repent by dwelling on the awesome, sovereign, creating God who is on the throne of all creation and existence. When we repent and we return to God, what can we hope for? That we might be better, that we might do better works? No, it's that the creator of all things has actually supplied a way for us to be forgiven for our sins. The things that we need to repent of, it's, it's not even our own repentance that, that earns us presence with God, that earns us forgiveness with God, the the creator of all things, the one on this throne, has sent his own son into the world to be crucified for sin, so that those who would repent, those who would confess their sin, those who would come to God in humility, can be forgiven not by our own deeds, but by Christ on the cross for us, and that his resurrection would give us new life, that his spirit would fill us and lead us to walk in righteousness. The call to repentance includes the gospel that the creator of all things is willing to forgive by Jesus' blood shed for you. So repent today. Repent now, knowing that you can enjoy the favor and the pleasure and the acceptance of him who sits on the throne of creation. You can go to bed at night going, I'm not going to be the president's favorite person. I know I'm not my boss's favorite person. I'm, I don't, I'm not even really good with my spouse today. But if, if I'm good in Christ, if I've repented of my sin, I'm walking in humility with the Lord, I've got God's favor. The highest throne in existence has given me favor through my faith in Christ. He sees me as a child, a daughter of him. The second thing would be to endure, used in the letters and throughout important places through the book of uh, Revelation, is the call to endurance, the definition of the book being about endurance. The keeping of faith begins in this ideal, as it were, in Revelation chapter 4, that we can endure remembering God is on His throne. I can keep going today today. In whatever God has for me, whatever obedience, whatever tragedy, because God is on the throne. When there is loss in my life, God is on the throne. When Christians are persecuted and killed, God is on his throne. When families are divided because of faith, God is on his throne. When jobs are lost because of faith or circumstances, God is on his eternal throne. When evangelism is tried but doesn't seem to work, God is on his throne. When marriages fail or they don't exist, God is on his throne. When babies don't come, when you wish they would come, or when they come, when you wish they wouldn't, God is on His throne. When the world is filled, like it is, with war, plague, storms, and floods, God is on the throne. Endure. Rest. Take a nap. God's on His throne. Keep obeying God. Keep trusting God. Keep walking in righteousness even though it's costly. Keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ even though it costs you your life or your livelihood. God is on his throne. His plans will be accomplished. And finally, worship. Repent. Endure. Worship. Worship God in reverence and awe. Tremble before him as a man or a woman standing before the creator. Who creates ex nihilo, who speaks out of nothing but himself and makes something into existence. Jim Hamilton says, Revelation 4 lifts our eyes to the most important being in the universe and summons us to behold our God. And this God is sitting on his throne. Today, look. That's what the word behold means. See, know God. Join the worship of heaven today in your heart, in your mind, in your faith. All you created things, join in the worship of your Creator. You were created by God's will. You were created because He said that's what He wanted to do. Worship Him as Creator. Psalm ninety-nine, verse one says, "The Lord reigns; let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned on the cherubim; let the earth quake." When we see him as he is, we ought to tremble. Maybe you're here this morning. You're thinking, "My heart just, heart just not trembling right now. I don't have that kind of response." I mean, just encourage you to go get with God in His Word, pray for His Spirit. To give you clarity about the magnitude of who God is, what he's done in the person of Jesus Christ. If you're listening to this and you're just thinking, man, I just, I can't even wrap my, hand, my head all around all the details. That's half the glory. We're not meant to be kind of dumb in the dark, but this is of a magnitude that the authors in Daniel and in Ezekiel and in John and Revelation... Use words like and in the appearance of a lot. Because they don't even know how to say it. Remember, Ezekiel says like fire, and John says like a rock. I don't even know how to describe it to you. It's indescribable. It induces awe, which is fundamental to worshiping God. A little book called The Knowledge of the Holy, which I would highly commend, written by A.W. Tozer, he says this in the first chapter The child, the philosopher, And the religionists all have one question. What is God like? He says, I must acknowledge that it cannot be answered except to say that God is not like anything. That is, he is not, not exactly like anything or anybody. That God can be known by the soul in tender personal experience while remaining aloof from the curious eyes of reason constitute a paradox best described and he quotes a poem, darkness to the intellect.'" but sunshine to the heart. I pray that this would be your experience today as we look upon the Lord through the lens, through the door, if as it were, of His Word. That even though we might not know all of the answers and God hasn't told us all of His plans, we can look into the control room. We can look inside the operation room and see there's a King, there's God over all creation on the throne and that we might repent, believe, obey, we might endure, and we would worship with the affection of our hearts and our souls. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this day, for this time, for this moment, and for those who have gathered here this Labor Day weekend for guests, for first-timers, for our members rejoining. We give you thanks for being here to hear this word, to sing these songs today that we've sung, to pray to you as we were Uh, led to pray about your glory and I pray that you would help us to be affected by your spirit instructed by your word that we might walk in a way that's pleasing to you in humility and trembling and for your glory and for our joy we love you father we pray this in Jesus name amen